Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning, everyone. Again, glad that you've joined us. First Peter chapter one. You might remember we started First Peter last week. So if you're new with us, I wanna say welcome again. Um, this little letter is very, very, very helpful. Now, I wanna start with just um, a map and, a, and an observation. I don't know when Elon Musk decided to create the electric car. They existed before him, of course, electric golf carts, but he had two challenges. One, a battery big enough to do in a car what people had become accustomed to. And then secondly, a way to recharge that battery wherever somebody might travel, because no one's gonna buy a car that you can't recharge or refuel, correct? Correct, just go with me, right? And so if you were to Google supercharge stations for Tesla, you'd find this map. And they're all over the country, it's coming, they're all over the country, and Canada, Mexico, and so without this infrastructure, the electric car is not worth much because you just get somewhere and you have to knock on somebody's door with an extension cord and go, hey, could I, could I hang out with you for two or three hours, maybe eight while my car recharges? This makes it work. Nobody's gonna buy a car they can't recharge. No one's gonna go on a journey in an electric car without knowing what the next stop is. Where am, I gonna, where am I gonna have a chance to refuel? Where am I gonna have a chance to regroup? Where am I gonna chance to, to get what I need to keep going? I meet way too many Christians who start their Christian life and they never refuel. They live on the fumes of some other part of their life. They don't stop and open the word of God and refuel. They don't ask the spirit of God to fill them completely and control their attitudes and their actions. They just kind of go. And when life is really hard, it depletes us really quickly. If you're in a hard place right now, you know what I mean. It's like life without a fuse. It's just, you're just done before you know it. The recipients of this letter, the original recipients were under persecution because of what they believed. That meant because they were Christian and claimed to be so, they were marginalized, they were persecuted, they were overlooked, they were pushed aside. They lived in a culture that was contrary and often against what they held dear. And what we said last week is that some days, even in our wonderful country, we can feel like the culture around us is not applauding or supporting what we hold dear, what we hold true, what we hold as valuable, how we understand truth, how we establish our morality. All of that is now suspect. And so navigating life on this journey as a Christian requires us to restop and refuel, but it also requires um, us to kind of realize where we are. So um, today's message is really for Christians. So if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, there'll be a lot for you to discover uh, about how God has worked through Christ and about um, how we have responded to Jesus, but it's really, uh, it's really a statement for Christians. And I want to start by saying this, Christianity, real live Christianity, we live from our salvation. We don't live for our salvation. 
What I mean by that is we live based on what God has done for us, to us, and in us in Christ. We don't live in order to get our salvation. We live from it, not to establish it. Does that make sense? We can live from it, and I'll explain more. Some of you have got like, Kevin, you're not making any sense. Based on what God has done, this is what we now do. One person put it this way. The indicatives of God precede the imperatives of God. The statements about what God has done in Christ, you must rest on that before you attempt to do what he's commanded you to do. That's really important. And it's a real important distinction from Christianity and from any other religion and some versions of Christianity where you have to work to establish your relationship with God. From your relationship in God flows a thank you life. And now we're motivated differently because his spirit is in us. He's given us a new disposition. He's given us a new want to. Now go and be different. So there's going to be four big bars that we, we move through this passage and grab a hold of. One is a change in the way we think. And I'm going to tell you what they are before we go. So you can be on the lookout for them. And you might think, that's the one I need to focus on. That's the one that I need to focus on. So there's, there's a change in the way we think and where we place our hope. Then there's a change in the way we relate to God, not casually, but set apart for him and for his service. Then there's a change in the way we relate to the world around us, not as as people trying to um, be just like everybody else, but people that are really called to be different because we are different. And then finally, there's a change in the way we're to relate to one another as Christians and love and and, uh, forgive and live with one another. So I don't know which one you might grab on today, or maybe more than one, but it's just to give you a, a heads up. And so I want to pray. I want to pray for you and for us that God would use his word to speak to you. It's one of the reasons we open it and say, here's what it says, because we believe his word is just about the most important thing there is. More, much more important than my word, his word. And it can, it can penetrate, it can get right down in between our attitudes and thoughts and help us understand where we are and reality. So if you're here and you found yourself really hopeless, I'm praying that God would meet you in a place of hopeless, at your point of hopelessness and give you hope. If you're here today and you, and you kind of, <clears throat> you're living consumed by your passions, they've overtaken you, I'm praying that you might find a, a, a way to catch your breath, to turn away from that. Maybe you're here and you've, and you've drifted back into an empty way of life that is the drumbeat around you, but it's not the one God's called you to in Christ. And maybe you're here and your relationships are such a mess that you can't love God or really anybody else. I don't know what it is, but I want to pray for us. All right, let's pray together. Father God, thank you so very much for a morning, a chance to get together, a chance to sing to you. I pray that the words we sang would would not just be just that, words we sing, but they would be the attitude of our heart where we praise you and we come to you as the one who rose from the dead and conquered sin and death. So Lord Jesus, would you, um, would you give hope where hope lacks? Would you give restraint where passions have overrun us? Would you give us a new perspective where we may have drifted into our old way of living? Would you give us a love for each other and a craving for your word? I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Chapter 1, verse 13. This is what it says. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, like in any kind of literature, you want to go, why, why is it there? What is it there for? To use a bad English expression. Uh, what, what is it? What's its function? And it's pointing back. And it's going, hey, based on everything that, that God did in Jesus, we have, a, we have a living hope now, verse 3, because Jesus rose from the dead and our hope is in him. We have an inheritance that won't fail or perish or, or somehow be corrupted. We have a joy that's unexpressible. We have love for each other and for God and him for us. And we are participating in something the people of the Old Testament longed for. Based on all that, I need you to set your hope even further, not just on the resurrection, which for them was past and for us is past, but something much further, the coming again. If God promised that Jesus would come and he came, if God promised that he would raise Jesus from the dead and he did, then we can trust him that Jesus will come back again. So no matter what difficulty you're facing right now, Peter says, I need you to put your hope on the grace that will be revealed when Christ comes back, and that's going to pull you through the difficulties that you're in. Make sense? That's what's going to pull us through. He's coming again, maybe in my lifetime, maybe in your lifetime, maybe in this generation. We would not be the first generation that prayed for it or hoped for it. Maybe we'll be the first one to see it. But it, Paul says, when you have such a hope, it actually purifies you because it's, it's keeping my eyes focused on Jesus rather than anything else. Where have you put your hope? What have you hung your hope on? Not your, not your aspirational hope, your real everyday hope. Most of us are consumed by the demands of life and we're hoping we can figure it out, outlast it, get the right counsel, have enough money. We put our hope in all types of things. And we find it surprising when it doesn't lead us through difficulties, but leads us deeper into them. What's pulling you through your difficult times? I want you to think about the Apostle Peter. He had a, he had a bunch of unique experiences with Jesus that taught him lessons and teach us lessons. One was Jesus told his disciples, hey, I need you to go across the, the Sea of Galilee, the little lake there. And so they went and there was a big storm and Jesus shows up walking on the water. And Peter's like, Jesus, if that's you, if that's you, then you command me to come out to you. <laughs> I need proof. Jesus said, come on. Now, here's a picture. Um, I love this picture. I went by the Apple store this week to have my computer worked on, and I was working on it because I had to wait a little bit, and this was on the full screen. And the young man that was waiting well on me went, man, that's awesome. Did you do that? And I said, yeah, it's awesome. No, that's Rembrandt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the reason it's awesome is because of Rembrandt, not because of me. You know, with just a few strokes of the pen, so it seems, he captures this. You see, Peter learned an important lesson in this little episode of his life, one that we all need to learn. If our hope is not fully set on Jesus, the storms of life are going to take us out. They just will. They just will. Peter got out of the boat and it says the waves distracted him. He got concerned about all the water going on around him. He lost his focus. He was no longer alert. He was afraid. He was no longer thinking clearly. Jesus said, come. And uh, he began to sink. And of course, we see Jesus totally calm, pulling him out of the water. Just, just amazing. 
How does Peter say we, we are to do this? We need to be alert. We need to be aware. We need to have our minds ready for action, not waking up in the morning going, oh my goodness. Hum. I wonder what's going to happen today. Whatever coffee you need, whatever kind of calisthenics you need to do, whatever you need to do to get your game face on, that's what Peter says. You need a game face. Life is not just passive. It's coming at you, particularly if you're being persecuted. I need you to be aware, not consumed by the environment. Peter, you're getting out of the boat during a storm. Be aware, and I need you to be sober-minded. If I called you, I'm going to get you through it. If you're in a storm that Jesus called you into, you need to know he's going to get you through it. You prayed about the job. You really felt like the Lord said, yes, this is it. And now you hate it. Not like a major in school where you go, I'm changing majors. I just got this job. My whole family depends on it, right? He's going to get you through it. Sometimes he brings us into the storms of life to help us sharpen our focus, our alertness, and our soberness. If he called you, he'll get you through it. And he does call us. And there's things that we need to be sober-minded about, that I'm forgiven, that I'm loved, that I'm adopted, that I've been redeemed. Those are things that I need to keep on my mind when the pressure of life comes at me. Makes a big, big difference. In your outline, because of our salvation in Jesus, living from it, set your hope on the grace of Jesus. Stay alert. Stay sober. Sober-minded. Have your mind ready for action. Why is it so important? Because we're to be different than the world around us, not just like them. We're to be set apart unto God. We're to live holy lives. That's what, that's what holiness means. Verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance but just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. As obedient children, as we obey, as we follow Jesus, we're not to conform to the to world around us. We're to be holy. I want to talk about holiness just a minute. It's a big word. This is a church word. It's an important word. Oftentimes, people take holiness to mean perfection. I want you to see that holiness has to do with consecration more than it does perfection. What we set apart for special use, we tend to use indeed for that special use. We understand holiness. Just think of any surgical instrument. You want them holy and set apart for you. I'm going to the dentist tomorrow. I'm already nervous about it. When I get there, I expect the tools for Kevin not to be used on your appointment before me, right? They're to be clean, they're to be spotless, they're to be sanitary, they're to be holy, because why? They're gonna be used in my mouth, evidently for most of the day, right? And, that, and so we go, oh, okay. God says, hey, you, I'm holy. As obedient children, being more and more like mom and dad, I need you set apart. That means the, the things we look at, the things we think about, the things we hear, what our heart craves for, what our mouth says, what it tastes, where our, what our hands touch and reach for, where our feet lead us. It's all dedicated to God. And if you concentrate, uh, uh, if you 
consecrate all that to the Lord, then the behavior will follow. There used to be a phrase, I don't know if it exists anymore, we're exclusively dating. That means I'm not dating anybody else. It means I'm committed unto you. And then the next step, of course, our piano player, Harrison, got, got engaged. He said, I'm set apart to you. Now, what do you think Miss Day's going to tolerate? Zip, zero, nothing. Right? Why is life any different? God says, man, you're mine. We're together on this. I want you set apart to me, living a holy life. And how do you do it? You don't conform to the pattern of this world. You don't become so comfortable in this world that you're indistinguishable from it. The word there means the, the overpowering passions of our life. Things like substance abuse, sexual lust, gambling, the things we have helplines for. These are the things that take us over. Previous generations kind of knew that. Now we just say, good luck with it. I'll see you in the support group. Hope you make it. God says, that you were, maybe you didn't know before. I wonder how many people in the room, after they became a Christian, became aware that sin was sin. I did. I had to go apologize to some people. I actually did that. I went and apologized to people. I've become aware that what I was doing with you, no, God didn't like that. But the contrastive word, be holy. And then Peter draws right out, right out of Leviticus. God said it. Not only are we not to conform, we're to be holy because that's who he is. Because of salvation in Jesus, secondly, be holy in all you do. Obedient, not conforming to evil desires. I'm listening to God I'm, and I'm asking him to empower me to, call, to do what he's calling me to do. Over and over and over. But you know what? It's extremely hard, is it not, to live a holy life, to live a different life when everybody around you is doing something else. They're pursuing power. They're pursuing pleasure. They're pursuing position. And you're to be loving and serving and giving. But everybody around you is cheating. Why can't I cheat? Everybody around you is manipulating the system. Why shouldn't I manipulate the system? Everybody around me is telling half-truths and partial-truths and taking a little under the table. Why not me because you're different. Growing up in Baton Rouge, the phrase that I heard growing up was, just because everybody jumps off the Mississippi Bridge, are you going to? As we raise adolescents, not just babies, right? Because they're like, well, everybody's doing it. Yeah, but we're not everybody. And you're not everybody. I had that conversation more than a few times with my father and then with my children. We're to be holy, obedient, in all that we do, not conforming to evil desires. And it's really hard because people live differently. So Peter moves to that. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartial, impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. In reverent fear. Again, Peter reminds us, this world is not our home. We may love it. We may like it. 
but it's not our, we're citizens of heaven. There are different rules there. There are different expectations there. There are different inheritances there. There's a different disposition there. There's more love there. There's truth there. There's righteousness there. There's holiness there. This is, this is what we're the citizens of. As Peter talked to people who were scattered all over Asia Minor, you need to live as foreigners and you need to remember your father, he's interested in what you do. In the Bible, there's, there's a couple things that God judges. He judges whether people have accepted him or rejected him. That's heaven or hell. But he also holds Christians accountable for their behavior. And how does he do that? I think he rewards and he doesn't reward. I, I know that at funerals, people like to read well done and good and faithful servant, but it's not my statement to make. It's my statement to wish for someone, but that's a God statement. Am I the person who's had all these talents and all these gifts and I've squandered them? Like the parable of the talents, when Jesus is explaining the economy of the kingdom? Or have I leveraged everything that he's given me? What little or large parts that I have for him? Peter's like, this isn't your home and God is impartial and he's going to ask you, hey, what about this? Help me understand this. That's the first reason God is impartial. And he's going to ask us. Then he gives another reason why we're to live differently in this world. And that's because of the great cost that Jesus went to, that God went to in Jesus to redeem us and make us part of his family. Verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But, by the, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Wow. This is a costly redemption. To redeem something is to purchase it, to buy it. You redeem coupons. When Jesus is described as our great redeemer, it's a word that was used of slaves in the marketplace. And, and somebody would go in and redeem the slave and take them out of the marketplace and establish a relationship with them. And Jesus said, I've come to redeem you from the slave market of sin and bring you out so that you can experience freedom and that you can actually be a slave of righteousness, which is not available to those that are in the slave market of sin. And, and he's, the, the picture there is of a lamb that somebody would, would uh, offer to God. And the Israelites were to bring animals as sacrifice, not the worst ones, the best ones. And Jesus is God's best. He's morally perfect and pure. And just, Peter's like, you can't live in this world like it's your home. You've been redeemed from, what is he, how does he describe it? This empty way of life that's handed down by your ancestors. I watched a lot of Christians drift back into the empty way of life. I have drifted into the empty way of life. And you wonder, gosh, this isn't very fulfilling. That's because it's empty. <laughs> this didn't, uh, but we still do it. Why? Because it's what's known. It's what we inherited. It's what our, maybe our family knew, our country knew. And he's got, but that, you have been, you've been redeemed from that. At a great, great cost. That's the second reason we're to live differently. And then thirdly, you're not trusting in the systems of this world. You're trusting in God. 
Verse 20. Speaking about Jesus, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed to you in these last times. Peter's readers are some of the first who have become Christians in the world. In these last times for your sake, and through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope, they're in God. They're not in the system that you're living in. You're not, we're foreigners here. We're passing through. Doesn't mean we don't care, but it does mean we're not defined by it not defined by it. I, I met a uh, person at lunch last week, and like I do, uh, you know, where are you from, what do you do, da-da-da, question, questions. Oh, I'm from Canada. Are you still Canadian? My next question. She said, yeah, I am. I've lived some 40 years in America, but I'm still Canadian. That was her identity. What does that mean? That means she's never voted in any elections here. Hmm, I said, where's my citizenship? It's in heaven. How does that affect the way I live? In your outline, because of salvation in Jesus, live as foreigners in the world. Fear and have faith in God. He's watching. He's, he does. He wants to know the choices we make. Salvation is not just a ticket into heaven and then do whatever the hell you want. I'm not trying to be shocking in the language. I'm trying to be accurate. Right? That's not, that's not Christianity. The Apostle Paul goes, why would you go back to what was empty? Why would you go back to what brought death? What, why would you go back to where you were when you lived in ignorance? Oh, man, everything's changed now. You've changed. He's changed you. Let's live in that. Mm. And where does it show up first, this change? Where does it show up most poignantly? A holy life, Kevin. Yes, a life that's set apart. Okay, I'm going to say it shows up in how we relate to one another. How we relate to one another. Verse 22 and 23. Now that, you have been, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, meaning simply as we live obedient lives, it, it works on changing the way we see life and we're purified so that you have sincere, uh, it produces love in us, so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Love full on. For you've been born again, not with perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. This is where it starts to make sense, how we relate to one another. You can't be a super holy, pious Christian and be a jerk to other Christians. They don't go together. You can't say, I'm living differently, I'm not a citizen of this world, and treat other Christians like trash. And that includes social media, the weird distance that we have, right? as we relate to people on social media. Mm, this is where the rubber meets the road, I like to say. Because a community that is struggling, we see some in Florida that are deeply struggling, and it, pull, it should pull people together. But Christian communities that are persecuted, the devil can, also, can get in, and the way he does it is he gets me fighting with you and you fighting with me, and before you know it, the community breaks down and we can't be salt and light to the broader world because we, we don't like each other and we won't do the work. We see it on the football field where one team just picks on another opponent until they blow up and then you're in their head. Game over. I've got you distracted. I've got you mad at me. Now I can beat you. Make sense? Since you've obeyed, love has, 
has started to fill your soul. Now that it's there, love one another deeply. Let me give you another illustration. I had a friend send me a news feed this week. He'll do that time to dime. Hey, you should read this. It's awful. Hmm. Hmm. It was. I wrote him back and I said, I, I, let me encourage you to get out of your news feed. You're in it too much. If you've got the news blaring in the background and you're constantly checking the, the, the news, you're going to be very frustrated. It's designed to do one thing, and that is to make you feel miserable about humanity and yourself. Most of it is simply information. It's not news. News is what inter intersects your life. That's why it's called good news, not good information, because the gospel intersects our life. But most of what we read is really deeply removed from us, right? And if you were to, take, if you were to fast from your newsfeed, I'll tell you what it begins to leave room for in your heart. Love. Begins, you, you, you don't, you just, you're just not angry all the time. And if you attempt to fast from your newsfeed, let me just alert you now, you will have withdrawals. Oh gosh, I need to find, I need to find, what's going on? It really doesn't matter. Most of it's small stuff. If, if, if we start fighting each other, there's no room for love in our heart and it kind of takes over. And so he says, hey, you've been, you've been uh, redeemed with an uh, imperishable seed. What's he talking about there? He's saying this. He's saying that the word of God is going to be your refueling station, and it's a different kind of fuel. And he compares it to human reproduction. People are born, they die, they're born, they die, and we're just a, we're just a blip on, on eternity's screen. It's very small. You probably can't even name your great-grandparents. I mean, we're, we're forgotten within just a few generations of our existence. Nobody knows us. And so Peter reaches into Isaiah 40, and in Isaiah 40, God says to Isaiah, I need you to cry out. And Isaiah's like, to these people, they're going to be gone tomorrow. And God says, but my word lives forever. Say it, because it will change people. So verse 24, for all the people are like grass, quoting from Isaiah 40. Peter's saying, you've been redeemed by a, 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 a perpetual word. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This enduring word is what's changed your life. I don't know if you've been able to keep up with all of a sudden there's no water. I mean, we couldn't keep up with our grass a month ago. You mow it, you mow it, you mow it. Now it's brown. My wife's out of town. She's on the plane, you know, where they come by and say, ma'am, turn off your phone. What was the last thing she said to me? Not I love you, which would have been great. Water the flowers. Because <laughs> they're going to be dead by the time I get home. And I didn't commit to the flowers. I'll just be honest. I'll say this publicly. The dogs will be alive. The fish will be alive. Maybe the flowers. I don't know. They don't last long. Just a couple days. But the word of God endures. It endures forever. In our elder meetings, we meet twice a month. We start our elder meetings by going around the room and sharing what we've uh, heard from the Lord in our hear journals over the past two weeks. And one of the elders said, I read this verse, and this is the word that was preached to you. And I just thought, I'm so grateful somebody preached the gospel to me. And that's the end result Peter wants. Okay, 
So I am to love wholeheartedly. I'm, I'm, and because I've got, I've got the word of God to, re, uh, to refurbish my love. Okay, what does it look like? Chapter 2, verse 1, the story continues across the chapter heading. Therefore, another therefore, looking back on this reality, love deeply. Okay, this is how you do it. Rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Get these uh, community breakers out of your life. These destroy relationships. Malice, I want to hurt you. Deceit, I want to lie to you. Hypocrisy, I never want to show you the real me. Envy, I want what you have. Slander, I'm going to talk badly about you. In text and on social media, again, include. The, Peter says you got to get rid of all of that. A few weeks ago, we had a men's retreat, and early on in the retreat, there was a moment where all the men that were there were challenged to do something, and it was to confess the sin you struggle with. And there were some broad categories given rather than specific categories. And a lot of the guys just stepped into it. I deal with pride. I'm struggling with lust. I, I do the, and, and so we went around, and I began to say, Lord, I have not been myself lately, and I wonder, I wonder if there's something in me that I need to confess that I'm just kind of unaware of. And the word that came to mind was envy. And so pretty much after everybody had said something, I'm like, okay, um, I'm struggling with envy. And so I left the retreat having said that publicly. And I, you know, as I opened the Bible in the morning, as I often do, I just said, Lord, what, what's going on inside of me? I said that. I think it's true. What am I envying? Just like that, it became clear. A few weeks ago, I was not here. I was in Montana at my niece's wedding. It was awesome. And I met a number of people that were close to my age. And two of them asked me the same question. I think it was my gray hair. I don't know. They asked me this question. Are you retired? And I went, no, actually. I'm right in the middle of a 10-year plan. I'm working as hard as I've ever worked. And, and, and then they started talking about what they do. Well, I've been doing pottery. And I thought, I want to do pottery. And he had one of his own coffee mugs. And he goes, yeah, I made this. I want to make my own coffee mugs. And then another guy said, I've been playing a little more golf lately. I've kind of working part-time. I've kind of gotten a few strokes. I, 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 I want to play a little golf. Wow. Find the clubs first. See if they're still, you know, there's no mud daubers on them. And then the, then the, then the real kicker, I'm working on my fishing. We're doing a float trip. If you don't know what that is, that's when you're on the most beautiful river in the most beautiful place in the world, catching trout for nine hours. And I'm going, I, I, want, I want that. You know what I wasn't doing? I wasn't doing, man, that's awesome. You've worked a hard life. You've given to this community. I wasn't loving them. I was, I was actually getting kind of frustrated with them, particularly the third guy. And then there was a moment of dancing, and they all danced better than me. And I'm like, oh, you know, I don't really like it here that much. <laughs> Actually, that's what envy does. I don't come into, a, into community and celebrate. I come into community and compare and compete. And then you're not somebody I can rejoice with 
nor are you somebody that you want to celebrate with me because I don't celebrate well. Kevin, guess what? I'm not guessing, okay? I'm not guessing. I don't want to know. But being the professional Christian I am, I'll go, what? (laughs) I made a place setting of eight in stoneware. (laughs) That's just great. Okay, all right, we're not supposed to do these things. Often in Scripture, you get the don'ts, which sometimes we over-focus on. And what I mean by over-focusing on them is not that we don't focus on them, it's that we don't put in something in its place. Where there's a don't, there's a do. Okay? So what are, we, what are we supposed to do? Verses 2 and 3. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, what I need you to do You've tasted the Lord. You know that he's good. You need to feast on him. You need to crave pure spiritual milk. Andrew Riley was up here a few weeks ago, and he said, we want, the, we want people in the chapel to be self-feeders. We want them to be able to stop and refuel themselves so they can continue on the journey. And that's what he's saying here. Stop and refuel If you've ever had an infant, you know when they're hungry. They have a way of letting you know. I wish Christians would cry and scream for the word of God. In 1998 or so, I went to uh, Romania to preach at a church with some other men, and we had to drive from Hungary. It was a 13-hour drive. We spent three hours at the border, and we it was in snow, and we were all in one car, and we were all large men. And anyway, we were six hours late. Six hours late. They were, they were expecting a Sunday morning. They stayed. I walked into a room bigger than this, and it was wall-to-wall people. They had waited six hours. And what we were instructed to do was create 15-minute sermons. I need you to come with 10 15-minute sermons. 15 minutes because they have to be translated. That means they're 30. You need 10 of them because you're likely to hear this. Can you keep going? Can you share some more? They were craving the Word of God. I was deeply humbled. Here's another picture, my last picture of the day. It's just a moment in the morning with your fancy pencil and your Bible, and you go, I'm going to map out and chart my refueling stations as I go through this life. Because of salvation in Jesus, love each other deeply. Crave the gospel of grace in all of life. Because it's what refuels us. Our four things again. Our salvation changes our thinking, and it means we put our hope not on our circumstances, but on the sure and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes our relationship to God. We are to be holy, consecrated, and set apart to him. What we think, what we feel, what our heart longs for, what our eyes look at, what our ears listen to, what our hands touch, where our feet lead us, what our mouth says and what it tastes. Set apart unto him not our evil desires. It changes our perspective in the world. We're foreigners here. It's in our home. We're not to sneak back into the empty way of life, drift back into it. And finally, our salvation changes how we view each other. We're to love each other deeply. And we refuel all of this by craving the word of God. 
It is what gives us the love. It's what corrects us. It's what shows us the sin in our heart as it did for me. It's what reminds us of what Jesus has done. It's what paints a clear picture of the future home that we're headed toward. So if you're not a Christian today, these are all instructions to Christians who have experienced the foundation, who have the indwelling Holy Spirit in their life, who have been changed and are are being called to live in that change. And the way you step into that is to trust Christ. He begins to change you. And he calls you then to be different. Radically different. Let's pray for us. Father God, thank you for our morning. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use our time together. That you'd use your word. Not just this morning, but maybe even tonight. We'd review it and consider what you're calling us to look at. Which of these four things that bump into each other pretty quickly that you'd have us address? I pray again for those without hope, that they would find their hope in you and place it on you. I pray for those who have been overcome with evil passions. Pray that you give them strength to resist and not be conformed, but to be holy and set apart to you. Lord, I pray for those who have forgotten and settled in seeking permanent residency right here, that you'd help them see their home in heaven. And Lord, I pray that we would love that the campus of LSU and the city of Baton Rouge and anywhere in the world where our congregations go, that they would know that we are your disciples because we love each other, we forgive each other, we apologize to each other. We ask for forgiveness. We extend forgiveness. We bear one another's burdens. We pray for one another. We rejoice with each other. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.